Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis and Doug Battle with the Fanalytics Podcast, which will be airing on 6 16 2020. How are you today, Doug? I'm doing well. I uh, got to say, it's the time of year where no news is good news. Uh, when you're a college football fan, you just want your players to stay out of trouble. And there's been no news this week, but I'm, I'm trying to be a glass half full kind of guy and uh, enjoy that. Well, there's, there's limited news everywhere in the world of sports. And what there is, is uh, kind of the, the third rail kind of news in terms of very, very hot topics. That being said, and I, w- I want to talk about a couple of things this okay. morning, and one is um, this is like one of my uh, one of my favorite topics, and that's uh, player negotiations and player salaries in the NFL. And, and I think the reason why this is making a little bit of buzz this week is that Dak Prescott is still negotiating with the. Well, actually, I don't know if he's negotiating. Uh, but he is not signing, I, I think it's the franchise tag going into mm-hmm. the season. Uh, the reason why this becomes a interesting topic is that I, I believe that Dak Prescott wants to be, one of his goals is to be the highest paid uh, quarterback in the NFL. Is that correct, Doug? Yeah, that's that's the latest I've heard. And I do know the Cowboys this offseason quietly brought in Andy Dalton, uh, which which brings another interesting twist to this whole situation. And so just this morning, I was watching Get Up on ESPN, and one of the quick pieces they did was a look at, I think it was the last, I don't don't have the details in front of me, but the last six or seven quarterbacks to sign as the highest paid, and it's always the highest paid quarterback in NFL history, they actually made a brief comparison to the uh, how this might not be the best thing for someone's career. Where if you sign as the if you get the highest the highest contract at the position, there tends to be a drop off in terms of production. They actually compared it to the Madden game curse, huh. which I tend to think of as there was always the Sports Illustrated cover curse, and so it's interesting to me that there is such a thing as the Madden curse as well. Are you familiar with the Madden curse? Yes, I am, and Patrick Mahomes recently broke it, so it's no longer a thing. Um, okay. But he's he's a Super Bowl champ, Madden cover. 
And so I, I asked you, did you pull some of the, uh, so if we just go back in time, I mean, the, the, some of the names that struck me in terms of signing deals as the highest paid quarterbacks were Joe Flacco, who mm-hmm. is, is, is did, did he recently sign or is he still looking for a new job? Yeah, Joe Flacco signed with the New York Jets this offseason after undergoing a neck procedure. So he's on a one-year deal currently with the New York Jets. Okay. So, and just as off the top of my head, you can sort of check this for me. There was Joe Flacco, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kirk Cousins, Jimmy G, um, yeah. Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, some of the others that have been in this, uh, in this limelight over the past uh, three, four years. Yeah, well, dating back to 2014, Eli Manning was the guy, and I know that because I'm a New York Giants fan, and it was highly controversial. He's not one of the more well-respected quarterbacks in the league at the time, but the Giants were coming off Super Bowls, which were, it's interesting to me, the Super Bowls were due more in part to other pieces of the team than the quarterback, and we see that often where winning is attributed to the quarterback position in Quarterbacks are also, their legacies are dependent on how well their teams perform, uh, more so than individual performance, which has always been fascinating to me. But Eli Manning was one, and then, yes, we had the Joe Flacco Super Bowl, and he became the highest-paid quarterback in the league at one point. Um, I know Phillip Rivers and Drew Brees were right up there at some point, Matthew Stafford. But more recently, I know Carson Palmer actually had one in 2017 that was among the highest in the league. Uh, which is shocking given that he had an injury history and obviously was toward the end of his career. Um, But yes, Jimmy G, Jared Goff, and Ryan Tannehill are among the highest paid quarterbacks, as well as Carson Wentz, Kirk Cousins, and the highest paid quarterback in the league right now is Russell Wilson with the Seahawks. So it's an interesting group, right? And your your comments about Eli Manning could be repeated actually for a bunch of folks in that group. I, I think you know the general sports fan, or maybe even the the typical executive, might look at this group, and you know a warning bell might go off as to why are these guys the highest paid quarterbacks in history? It's not like you named the list. The list that you named did not feature you know Tom Brady, for example, right? It, it's right. not a list of I mean, just just off the top of your head, how many of those guys are Hall of Famers? Perhaps just a, a couple of them at most, right? Right. I mean, at this point, you can't see someone like Jimmy G in the Hall of Fame. Of course, that could change over the course of his career. Um, Eli Manning's a fringe Hall of Famer. Uh, Russell Wilson will be in there. But there's a lot of fringe guys like Philip Rivers and Matt Ryan, you know? So, um, like you said, it's not... Well, Kirk, Kirk Cousins, right? Kirk, yes, Kirk Cousins at this point. Yeah. It, it would be hard to fathom him making the Hall of Fame. And so what, what's interesting to me about this topic of highest paid quarterbacks and even this notion of the highest paid quarterback curse is I think there's a fairly, there's an interesting analytics story that comes into play on this. And and it, th- there's multiple dimensions to it. And the, the first one is just the way NFL contracts tend to work. And, and so there's there's a lot of different ways to do analyses to support decisions related to signing players and the contracts. I think overwhelmingly what is done is a, is a process called comparables. Are you familiar with comparables, Doug? Um, is this comparing a player 
to a similar player and, and to project what they will, how they will perform. Exactly. Now, the the interesting thing to me is you know, you're you're a young guy. I think most of the time when people hear about comparables, it's in the process of buying a home, and the real estate agent, you know, you identify a home, and the real estate agent goes out and finds a list of the last three or four similar purchases. And you make an offer based on those similar purchase prices. And then very often, and I think this is kind of a key thing, maybe there's a little bit of a premium onto it, right? So maybe you bought a 4,000 square foot house. You're looking at a 4,000 square foot house in a neighborhood. There were three sales last year. You basically take what the, the sales price of those were and then maybe add a little bit of premium because the market is moving upwards. Well, if that's the system they're using in the NFL, which is we're tr- you're, you're going out there to sign a quarterback, you're looking at the past market for top quarterbacks, right? Because it, it, at any moment, the guys that you're talking about signing are the top quarterbacks on the market at that time, whether it's Kirk Cousins, Matt Ryan, or Patrick Mahomes. And so they will take a look at, basically you take a look at the quarterback market in the past, and then, and this is where the NFL, I think, gets very dangerous for themselves, is you look at the trends in the salary cap. And so if the salary cap is moving up by 5% over last year or 2% over last year or 10% over last year, then you take that previous number and you add that additional percentage. And voila, the top quarterback, uh, the top quarterback salary is always just the latest guy whether he is a one-hit wonder or just it's a relatively light quarterback class. Um, it's a relatively primitive way of, of doing things, I think, based on what else is possible. And that's why we see a guy like Kirk Cousins in the top 10 highest-paid quarterbacks right now. Exactly. It's, that, it's a very heuristic-driven approach to uh, determining where, where the market should be, right? It's, and, and you actually see this in a lot of sports. You see this for stadium naming deals, for example, any of the sponsorship deals. It's like, well, where was the market at in the past? And, and so, again, that's kind of an interesting point. Where was the market at in the past rather than what should the market be at? And then we add a premium because, in general, the overall sports marketplace is growing. Now, coming off of COVID-19 and uh, sort of these massive shocks to the sports world, you know, maybe we don't actually see growth year to year, but it, but in general, that's been what's happening. Now, as a stats guy, I always want to go the essentially the opposite, well, not really the opposite direction, but a more forward-looking approach. You know, mm-hmm. in general, the right approach to this kind of task would be to build a forecasting model. So look at the data on any of these quarterbacks, be it Eli Manning, be it Russell Wilson, look at their performance, look at the trajectory of their performance, look at their age, and then come up with a forecast for how we think that guy's gonna perform over the next two, three years, and put a dollar figure based on that predicted performance. Is that something that's going on in the NFL that you're aware of uh, when it comes to these contracts with quarterbacks? I suspect that there is some of that in the background, that there are enough smart people and there are enough... I mean, there's two sides to this, right? So you've got 
the the ownership side, the team side can hire statisticians and sports economists to do those kind of forecasts. The player side, the agent side, they've also got the resources to put those kind of models together. Um, and so I suspect those those type of elements are coming into the equation. But when I look at it from an outsider and I just see what happens and we and we see this year in, year out, it seems like what's really driving this, what's really determining the eventual salaries is this relatively simple notion of comparables. I mean, so, you know, Dak Prescott, if you were ranking quarterbacks, where would you put him in the league? He's not in that top tier, in my opinion, with Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. Um, you know, he, of course, he's the caliber of quarterback that you could build a Super Bowl winning team around, um, but it's yet to be done. He hasn't had a lot of success. The Cowboys haven't had a lot of success in the playoffs with him. And, uh, you know, he's 27. He is in his prime. And so he's going to probably get the biggest contract he'll ever get now. But would I pay him how I would pay... Say, well, let me let me yeah let me is he a top five quarterback or is he a top ten quarterback is he top fifteen quarterback? Yeah, I would say ten to fifteen. Okay, so he's a top ten guy, and so it's a very strange thing, right? That he is positioned to be the highest paid player in the league at least for you know ten fifteen minutes what, until the next guy comes around. Right. But I, but I think you're, you know, I think he went to the Pro Bowl that might suggest that he is a top you know, a top five to 10 quarterback. But I think your opinion is, is it's well within the realm of conventional wisdom, right? In terms of the, the, there, I don't think there's any consensus that he is a top one or two player in the league, but yet he is going to potentially get the highest salary in the league. So in, in terms of looking at how these things are done, you know, not being privy to any individual negotiation, it does not appear that there is a lot of, let's say, advanced custom analytics going to this. Mm-hmm. It appears that things are very much driven by tradition and like this notion of comparables. So do you feel like a franchise's decision to make a player like Kirk Cousins or Dak Prescott, um, and clearly those players are in two different categories, but both not a top five guy in the league, to make a player like that a, a top paid quarterback, do you feel that that decision is irrational from an economic standpoint well there okay so there's two other things and and i like the word i like the word irrational because that brings us to another tendency in these kind of negotiations or another fact of how these negotiations go and and that's this notion of and it's a strange word to use these days but the the notion is bias now we're not talking about bias how most people think of the word we're talking about cognitive biases or uh, you know it's sort of a core concept in a core concept in behavioral economics which well I'll say cognitive biases your word is actually an interesting one there was a gentleman named Dan Ariely a few years ago who wrote a book called predictably irrational and and so the basic notion of there is basically people make decisions in ways that tend to be suboptimal. So in in the case of signing a quarterback to the highest salary ever, you can easily come up with some some logic for why that tends to happen. So number 1 in statistic, the statistical world, there's this thing called the regression towards the mean. Mm-hmm. Basic idea there is that people's performance, you don't want to pay people based on 
their most dramatic performance, let's say. That if exactly. you take a look at players, guys have great seasons and then they sort of tend to go back to go back to normal, right? You don't want to pay someone based on their their outlier season. You don't want to pay a, you know, since this is on uh, you know, the 30 for 30 series, you don't want to pay Mark McGuire as though he's going to hit 65 or 70 home runs every year, right? Yes, in and, general and- Yeah, and tying it back to the quarterback conversation, I mean, you look at guys like Joe Flacco and Eli Manning getting paid immediately after magical Super Bowl runs, right, where they played the best football of their career by a mile. Um, And and it's like they were projected to continue playing that way, although anyone who had watched them the course of their careers up until that point um, would have been shocked if they continued playing that way. And that, that's a great insight, right? You are paying these guys as though they are going to win the Super Bowl for you every year. Now, you know, oddly, the one guy that you probably could have made that case for, Tom Brady, never actually got paid as though he was going to win the Super Bowl every year, which is, you know, it's a small aside in all this. Uh, the, the, other, the other behavioral economics theory that seems relevant to this issue is something called the winner's curse. The winner's curse is particularly relevant when these guys are free agents. Uh, the idea behind the winner's curse is that if you've got a bunch of folks bidding for, and, and this is not from the world of sports, but if you've got mm-hmm. a bunch of folks bidding for an asset, then the person that's going to win is the person that has the most optimistic view of what that asset is worth. Well, guess what? If you accept the notion that the crowd on average understands what the asset is worth. You know, let's say it's a diamond. Let's say it's a it's an oil it's an oil well. If on average the crowd views this oil well as being worth a million dollars, or this quarterback being worth twenty million dollars, maybe that's a true reflection of what that asset is worth. But the person that's going to win the auction or be able to sign the free agent is the one that's going to view the oil well as being worth. Two or five million dollars, or have being the quarterback viewing the quarterback as being worth thirty or forty million dollars. So there's, you know, on top of this tradition of comparables, there's also some potential uh, cognitive biases that come into this. The structure of the free agent markets that also conspire to end up overpaying. Uh, you know, sort of the the flavor of the week, which is a little bit unfair, but you, you get where I'm coming from. The yes. player that is the top of the class in, in any given off season. Yeah, that makes me think of uh, like last off season in the NBA, Harrison Barnes. You know, pretty mid level guy. Well, multiple teams want his services, and the team that ends up getting him is a team that's probably projecting him to be more of an all star type player, and that's the Sacramento Kings. Um, paying him close to $20 million a season, which is absurd for his production. But like you said, it's the team that is most optimistic about what he can become uh, wins, and they end up overpaying for him. And we see that in sports all the time. A long tradition of it in sports. And, and when, you think about, you know, when you think about things like the winner's curse, um, it actually, or regression, both the winner's curse and regression to the mean, it's kind of an interesting thing to take a step back and think about the way sports signings work from those perspectives because it actually does explain things like the Madden 
the Madden game curse or the Sports Illustrated curse, right? That the guy that is having the best year of his career, they end up getting the accolades and the salary and the notoriety, but the odds are that there's going to be a drop-off following. The other topic I want to touch on real briefly is an article uh, that was dealing with ESPN's ratings. The, the reason why I'm interested in the article, and I, I want to do this in a fairly even-handed fashion, is that the article made the point that ESPN's ratings have absolutely plummeted. And in general, what they're talking about is the, the, morning, the morning show, so Get Up with uh, Mike Greenberg, uh, first take with Stephen A. Smith and um, Max Kellerman. And, you know, ESPN structure is that throughout the day they've got these, I don't know if you want to call them debate shows or commentary-based mm-hmm. shows, but they're a mix of reporting on the, on the topics of the day and a little bit of, you know, typically they've got multiple folks on. And, you know, I, I think first take is the best example, right, where Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman are very often yelling at each other throughout the, throughout <laughs> the morning. Right. Yes, they're paid to yell um, and, and to have the opposing view of the other person, regardless of what that view is. Yeah, they're, they're, they are paid to have lively debate. Now, the, the reason why I think the, the ESPN drop off in the ratings and, and the article is fairly brutal. There, there was a comparison made that I saw that uh, and we'll, we'll link to the article. It wasn't in an outlet that I even remember the, the name of. But they were making the point that ESPN's debate shows, and, and look, ESPN has been for the last 30 years like a core TV network for folks like myself and for you too, Doug? Yes. Yeah. That I think that the morning shows were generating or they were attracting fewer viewers than it was Jay Leno's Garage. So, Which I didn't even know existed. I didn't know it existed either. And I couldn't tell you what network it's on, but it, it it suggests that ESPN has essentially hit that they've almost kind of bottomed out. You, you really wonder if how many people are actually now watching it versus the turning on the TV via habit or that the TV is, you know, just on that, you know, it's almost like the dentist office is playing ESPN at this point. Now, the reason why I'm interested in this topic is that, you know, there's almost like there's two arguments for what could be going wrong with with Mm. ESPN's ratings. Number one, and and these things are, and I'll get to sort of teasing apart these arguments in a second, and frankly, it's impossible, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So number one, well, we haven't had sports for the last three months, and so it makes sense that ESPN should be struggling. Why would people be tuning in if there is nothing going on? Right, Doug? Yeah, and it's interesting to me that the author of this article um, made very, very little of that. Uh, it's clear yeah. that that he was clearly trying to make a point as to the content that is being discussed and the negative impact of that. But to be fair to ESPN, they don't have too much to work with as far as sports are concerned. Though it is a, though it is an interesting thing, right? It's like you know, so much of the world of sports is about sports, but so much of it is also about what's happening on the periphery of the games, right? So watching ESPN this morning in preparation for this discussion, they had 
you know, they had a quite a bit to talk about. I mean, they, like we we just piggybacked on some of it. The you know the signing of Dak Prescott. There was a discussion about would the NBA players boycott the proposed season that may be happening in Orlando. So th- there is some content now. I, I do think it's fair to say that maybe people get bored with this constant talking about what might be happening in the future. Uh, but the other, the other argument, or the other explanation, and there's, this has been a, a topic or a point of contention for the last several years, is that ESPN has simply become too, and the, the term that always gets thrown around is this idea of woke center or ESPN has become too political and folks are turning away because they don't want to be preached to. Yeah, I think there's two sides to that um, because there's a certain aspect of sports fans like myself. When I tune into ESPN, um, I'm doing that in place of tuning into, say, CNN or Fox, depending on uh, you know your political preferences. If I wanted to hear about those things, I would tune into one of those channels. If I want an escape from um, some of the issues, and I'm speaking on behalf of you know some of the people maybe that aren't tuning into ESPN, if you want an escape, you go to sports and sports is something that can unify and that we can just all enjoy for a little bit and kind of relax. And so I think that's one side of the coin. I think on the other side, athletes have been very outspoken about all that's going on um, as far as Black Lives Matter, as far as the election coming up. And you know, ESPN covers athletes. They cover the periphery of sports. And I think it's going to be a big story. I think, you know, you and I have talked about we expect to see a lot more kneeling here, you know, a lot more Kaepernick kind of behavior from players um, and activism in the coming days. And I think ESPN anticipates that and they're trying to capitalize on that storyline. You know, it, it's up to the discernment or the judgment of the audience as to whether they approve of what's been termed woke sports coverage or if they prefer no social issues no political issues in their sports coverage at all at this point the data does seem to indicate there is a significant segment that prefers none at all although of course uh, it's a skewed number because ratings would be down regardless of what they're talking yeah. about because there's not an NBA if the NBA finals were going on right now ratings would be through the roof uh, for first take we'd have Stephen A debating LeBron and Michael Jordan for the one millionth time. But, you know, we have what we have as far as numbers are concerned. And uh, there certainly is a continued storyline of some pushback on ESPN's embrace of what's going on politically and socially in our world. Well, and and I think that's a good summary. I like how you, you did that sort of laying out a bunch of the a bunch of the details in terms of going forward. And so, you know, my, my take or sort of my view on ESPN at the moment, right, is there is this signal, and I'll do this in a fairly academic fashion. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this signal that there is lower interest in their coverage of the world of sports. Now, we only have a single, in a way, we only have a single piece of data in terms of the the ratings have dropped off, but we have multiple explanatory variables, Correct. Mm-hmm. We've yes. got the the shutdown of sports due to the pandemic. We've got sports becoming ever more politicized be through the BLM movement. You know, and let's just keep it simple. So we've got these two potential explanatory variables explaining one 
dependent measure or one outcome variable, which is the, the ratings. Now, where I think this is an interesting thing to look at is, is this a harbinger? Is this a early warning sign of what is to come? I, you know, I, I spend my academic career, the, the majority of it at this point, thinking about fandom, thinking about sports fandom, fandom and other revenues like politics or entertainment. We are now going through what I might call a structural change where the world is potentially fundamentally different. So we've had the absence of sports for several months. What's going to happen on the other side? So we've had an absence, you know, and I think we've talked some about this. Do people become less interested because they ha they haven't seen it? Do they tend to forget about it? I, I think, you know, baseball, for example, seems to be having very contentious negotiations in terms of whether or not they're going to come back. The NBA seems like they had a plan in place, though there's a little bit of noise now that maybe that season is a little bit under threat. The, the abbreviated season is a little bit under threat because of the political environment. It's, to me, an interesting thing that we're just going to have to see play out. But the drop-off at ESPN, too, and, and again, the, you know, the article was sort of brilliant in terms of identifying this Jay Leno's garage show that neither of us had ever heard of. Mm -hmm. The idea that ESPN and their, their core morning shows is dropping below that, red flags should be going up through the world of sports and the world of sports broadcasting simply because who knows what's actually driving this you know fall off a cliff, essentially. Yeah, well, one thing I do know um, is that there's no doubt that our country is is incredibly divided right now and will continue to be so through the election. And I think if one side uh, politically feels that they're being uh, preached the other side's agenda, um, you know, whether that's true or not, if that's how they feel, they are not going to be inclined to tune in to that programming. And I think, like you said, I think that is absolutely a factor here. Now, how much of that is COVID-19 versus the political movements we're seeing? I don't know. But regardless, there's concern certainly in the sports industry for these declining numbers and, and what sports will look like in really in this coming year. Yeah, well, I don't, I'll take the last word on that because I, sure. I loved one of the comments that you made in that. You look at the election polls and we are clearly a 50-50 divided country. I, I've said it I've said it in the past. The the election between Trump and Biden is probably going to be somewhere between 47 it's it, undoubtedly it's going to be between 47 and 53 regardless of who ends up on top. And so as sports becomes politicized, there's this potential danger that it just doesn't feel that much fun for the folks that may be alienated by the dominant political mood. Now, that's so, you know, I'm saying this without judgment, but that's the uh, that, that's the world that sports is in right now. It's a timeout that maybe has caused people to think less about sports and potentially coming back with a with a product and a in a tone that may not feel all that inviting for a big chunk of the paying customers. So sports is sports is 
you know, they, they got to, you know, pick up whatever analogy you want, you know, walking the tightrope or threading the needle. This is a, this is a challenging world as, uh, and on top of that, you know, let's just throw this in as the last word on this. On top of it, these leagues are all going to be facing massive mm. uh, revenue deficits in terms of what they thought they were going to have to come in this year. So it is in some ways a perfect storm and, and a, a absolutely fascinating thing to watch how this is going to play out. Well, Mike, I know you said last word. Um I do have one more thing to say, and uh, that is that as far as networks like ESPN, it's an incredibly tough position. And this is kind of piggybacking on what you were saying. But on the one hand, you are criticized for not using your platform for a certain movement. And on the other hand, you are uh, boycotted. For, for standing up for something or for using your platform uh, that's supposed to be, you know, or that I guess has the expectation of being purely sports um, for anything beyond that. And so from a purely business standpoint, it really is a catch-22 for these networks. And, and I think, too, for players and for teams, because like I said, there's this expectation to use your platform now for advocacy, it's not like how it was. Like in the Jordan documentary, they discussed how, how he really wasn't an advocate. He was just an athlete. Um, that is no longer the case. And it's like, if you are not, it can be counted against you. But if you are, it also can. And so I think there's probably some decision-making being made across franchises as to how to approach this. And it's a very delicate situation. It's an, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's an impossible situation. There's, there's an evolving culture and this incredible you know and the jordan example is a good one right because jordan has now become more politically involved just over the last the last couple of weeks and again it's like i think we always come back to the same basic notion and i don't know how true it was that there used to be you know sports used to be this this escape this unpoliticized escape and now sports is really it's been you know, folks have recognized that athletes have tremendous voices. They've got platforms. Seems to be the the current the current terminology, and so they are now in a position where they have to. They are forced to get involved. the The option of I'm just a basketball player. I'm just a football player. No longer seems possible. Which again, I will be an interesting thing to see how this all. All plays out. Does sports become this unifying thing, and everyone goes to the game, NFL games, and they're happy when everyone is kneeling, and this becomes acceptable, or do we start to see a more of a segmentation across sports? Um, maybe some sports leagues becoming smaller. I think there's been some discussion that Major League Baseball may struggle in terms of coming back, especially if they lose the whole season. Um, hard to say what's going to happen. Absolutely. Okay, so why don't we wrap it up there? As always, guys, well, a little bit of a preview. We will be uh, publishing or launching the podcast version of Class 3 of our Fanalytics University series. This week's class will focus on consumer psychology, so a relatively deep dive into what goes on, let's say, between the ears of, of the fan how fan communities provide value. So a fundamental look at the 
why we are fans. And so you guys can take a look for that this Thursday. As always, a lot more content on the website at www.fanalyticswithmikelewis.com. So until next time, thank you.